0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text.
0: Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, Talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering Acts chapters 6 through 9. We've been talking about this book, The Acts of the Apostles, or
0: How Apostles Act, and now we're just going to kind of expand it into a broader view. We're just going to go from 12 to 70, and we're just going to watch that influence just spread, because we've grown to love Peter, and we're going to grow to love Paul as an apostle. But now we get to love Stephen, and we get to love the 70, because we're going to see in them all the attributes of disciples and apostles that we saw in our last podcast. And the idea here is you don't have to be an apostle to be a disciple of Christ. Every one of us can find ourselves empowered to act like a disciple of Christ with confidence and strength, and we can stand up for what is right, just like Stephen did. He wasn't an apostle, and yet all of a sudden we're going to see this confidence and this power come into his life, and we're going to watch Heavenly Father pull back the veil just a little bit in that moment of suffering as if he was trying to say, Stephen, I'm not far away. I haven't left you. So I think this next little chunk in Acts is beautiful to realize that the same power, the same confidence, and the same heavenly help is now being extended to another group. In the church standings, you might say that the 70 come below the 12, but we're going to see tremendous confidence and power poured out upon those who are in the 70. And every one of us should sit back and cheer and say, yes, that's how heaven works, Anyone who takes upon them the name of Christ can speak with power and authority and receive the Lord's help, just like Stephen and the Seventy. So let's now turn to this idea of the role of the Seventy, or the helpers, or those who assist. And I want to talk about an attitude. I want to begin with an attitude of a disciple that we all need to have. In chapter 6, verse 2, the twelve apostles are having a concern. So the 12 called the leaders of the church together and said in verse 2, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, I know that can be twisted to be very offensive, but the idea here is there are things that only apostles can do. The key of that office is required to do certain things. And they were not doing those certain things because they were taking care of the widows. And that's appropriate that the widows are taken care of. But those things that only apostles can do are being neglected because the apostles are doing something that I can do. And so that's why they call the 70. They call the 70 to do the things that the apostles were doing, but were neglecting the weightier matters. I remember one day heading over to the church in the middle of a snowstorm, and there was my bishop shoveling the snow from the walk. And I instantly thought of Acts chapter 6 and the struggle that the 12 were having. Because in verse 1, as the church grows, and we have so many people, we have Grecians, we have Hebrews, and widows are in need. And so I know that that was tugging on the heartstrings of the apostles, that these widows were suffering. And so the apostles were going out and taking care of the widows. Now, in a very tender way, and I think the 12 tried to say this as tenderly as possible, so, so we don't get the idea we're better, but there's a principle here and an attitude of a disciple, and that's appropriate that the widows are taken care of. But those things that only apostles can do— were being neglected so they could take care of the widows. And that's something that I can do. Bishop, I can shovel this, but there's things in that office that I can't do that only a bishop can do, so let me shovel the walks. And it's something that bishops need to understand, and so do the rest of us to say, boy, let me do the things that I can do so that you can do the things that only you can do. And there's the attitude of a disciple. There's the attitude of someone who understands that we all are equal, but we're not all the same, and we have different assignments. And you can really put this into practice in a family, in a corporation, in a city, as well as in the church. I am more than willing to do the things that I can do so that you can do the things that i can't do and then i rush to that i volunteer to shovel the snow at the church i'm happy to set up chairs because you know what normally happens the leaders of the ward come out of ward council and hurry and set up the chairs because no one's there to set them up but there's things that that ward council should be doing instead of setting up chairs I just think that's
1: an attitude of a disciple that we need to point out. That's good. So in this chapter, we have individuals named in verse 5 that are chosen, and you'll notice the preeminent one here is going to be Stephen, and he's really the one that's going to be giving the discourse in the 7th chapter. And so he's doing, verse 8 says, great wonders and miracles among the people. And so while he's doing this, there's individuals that are going to come at him and basically accuse him of speaking blasphemous words against what it says here in verse 13 is against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Now this place, I'm going to read as Jerusalem, and there's a gate In the northwest section of the walls of Jerusalem, it's called the Lion Gate. And tradition relates that this is the place where Stephen was martyred. You can actually stand at that gate, at that place where tradition tells us that he was killed, and he's not going to be killed in this chapter. It's going to be in the next chapter after he gives his discourse, but what he's doing here is by his witness of Jesus and teaching the people about Jesus, the accusation is going to come that because you're teaching this, you don't believe in the law, and you don't believe in Moses, and we've got to take you down. And verse 15 talks about how they see his face, and it had been as the face of an angel. Now, there's a couple other people that in Scripture have that countenance uh, described in such manner. One of them is Moses. Another one is Abinadi. I know that in church history, Joseph Smith sometimes has been referred to having that kind of countenance. And this is really the, the segue going into the seventh chapter, and my my view of this chapter is... Stephen is going to establish his credibility as one who does believe in Moses and does believe in the law and does believe in the Hebrew Bible. He just reads it differently than they do. He's going to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the types that are laid out in the Hebrew Bible. And he's going to use their their support of
0: Moses, their, their love of the patriarchs, kind of against them to say, you're doing the very things that the hostile people did to the patriarchs. So if you really loved the patriarchs, you would see what you were doing as an act of opposition to them. And that's going to become very apparent in the next chapter. But I do want to point out a couple ironies here in chapter six. First of all, they saw him as having a face of an angel, and yet he's anti-Moses. Do you see the irony? This man speaks blasphemous words against Moses in verse 11, and yet he glows like Moses did. They didn't catch that, that this man is anti-Moses, and yet of all the people standing here, the one who's most like Moses is this man. The other irony is in verse 14, where they accuse Jesus Of destroying this place and changing the customs which Moses delivered. And the irony is it was their rejection of Christ that led them to more military-like messiahship. So that under the very first Jewish result, they, they really did favor a military messiah who would march on Rome and stand up against Rome and fight for the Jewish traditions. But that little act of rebellion is what causes Titus to come in and completely destroy the place and their customs. It wasn't Jesus that destroyed the place and the customs. It was their rejection of Christ.
1: In fact, his message was over and over again, right? My kingdom is not of this world. Or then even speaking to the zealots among them, and he found ways to say, let's make peace with them. If they ask you to carry their baggage, carry it two miles. I mean, Jesus was the opposite of the Messiah that they ended up choosing. Yep he was basically saying if you choose that type of messiah
0: this is what's going to happen that's exactly what happened why did those jews lose their customs and why did they lose the temple it really is traced to their rejection of the true messiah and their acceptance of a more military-like messiah i like that where you point out that verse 14 is ironic very ironic stephen is going to be very quick to observe to say wait a minute You love Moses, and yet you're doing the very things that the hostiles did to Moses. You love the patriarchs, but you're making the very mistake that the people made against the patriarchs. Do you not see what's happening? And I think that just illustrates this ability to observe and be quick to notice when I'm actually doing the same thing that I condemn. Sometimes we catch ourselves doing the same thing that I condemn. For example, people hate haters. They condemn haters with hate. And yet you're doing the very thing that you're condemning. We need to be quick to observe and notice when I'm doing the very thing that I'm condemning,
1: which is what these people are doing against Stephen. So, There's some really neat things going on here. I just want to highlight a couple things because we can really get kind of bogged down in the details. I happen to love Acts chapter 7. I like to talk about the details. One of the things I like about this, and we put this in the show notes in a little chart, Stephen's defense of himself is going to be a couple of things. One of them is, hey guys, I know the Hebrew Bible. Don't tell me I'm not one of you. I know this, but I have a little bit extra. I read the same book you do, but I also see Jesus as the fulfillment of this. So don't discount my witness just because you don't understand, or you're going to make these accusations that are false. Stephen sees in Moses's life echoes of Joseph, and in Joseph's life echoes of Moses. And I think that Stephen is going to show and say, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of those types. For example, just one example, verse 13 says that when Joseph shows himself to his brethren the second time that he is made known to his brethren. Now, if you've read the story at the end of Genesis, like those 12, 13 chapters, when the brothers come to get food and Joseph's in charge and he's speaking to them, In a foreign language. They don't understand what he's saying, and there's an interpreter. They have no clue that they're talking to Joseph. But the second time uh, he reveals himself to them, and they weep, and there's this beautiful reunification between the brethren and Joseph, and he frankly forgives them. And my belief is that is a beautiful type of Christ. And the Jews, the second time when Jesus comes, will recognize him. And I believe that he sees Jesus as a fulfillment of Old Testament types, that the Old Testament stories can be read to see Jesus on every page. But we have to read the text with eyes that can see typology.
0: Now, there's some actually pointed statements that he's going to bring up in doing that very thing. For example, speaking of Moses, remember when Moses saves the Hebrew from the Egyptian? That moment where Moses comes in, saves the Hebrew against the Egyptian, and yet the Hebrews kind of criticized him for it. Then in verse 25, kind of hear what Stephen's really saying. He, we're speaking of Moses, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them but they understood not. Do you see what he's really saying? That that was Moses, but it's also Jesus. That he supposed that his brethren would have understood. They would have read the scriptures. They would have been familiar. And they would have known that he was being sent to deliver them, but they understood not. In fact, what did they say to Moses? Verse 27, who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Hmm, I wonder who said that to whom. It's exactly what those very Pharisees said to Christ. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you see what Stephen's doing? And because of that, verse 35, this Moses, whom they refused saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge, the same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer. He is drawing powerful parallels to the Israelite rejection of Moses, to the brother's rejection of Joseph, to the Pharisees and Sadducees and the lawyer's rejection of Christ. And that's exactly what we were talking about is you honor someone and yet you've missed
1: the point. You're doing the thing you condemn. He's basically calling them out saying, you guys are acting like your fathers that were... Uh, being knuckleheads. I mean, we see this in verse 39, where he says that our fathers would not obey Moses. So in verse 40, they went to Aaron and said, make us the golden calf, and they do. And then later in verse 43, where he says, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, figures which he made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So he kind of summarizes the Old Testament in just a few sentences here to illustrate to his audience that their fathers were rebellious even though God sent them prophets. And because of this, they suffered. And he's throwing the gauntlet down in verse 51 when he says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. And wow. And then he says, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them. "...which showed before the coming of the Just One, whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers." who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. There's our phrase,
0: cut to the heart. Remember that from our last podcast? Now you get to choose how you respond. Some people are cut to the heart and they say, like the disciples, what do I need to do? How do I change? Other people are cut to the heart and they're offended and they want to attack or take out the accuser. So there's that sign of a disciple or a non-disciple. They were cut to the heart. Now that's going to make them so angry that they're going to rise up and stone Stephen. Now what happens next is worth pausing. I think this is the moment of come follow me that we need to pause and have a little discussion with our children. A very painful event is about to happen in the life of Stephen. He's going to be stoned to death. That's a horribly painful way to die. They're throwing rocks and stones at him until he's dead. And what preceded that is a beautiful little moment that I think we all need to see. I think God knew the painful death that was awaiting Stephen. And so he pulls the veil away a little bit Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, in verse 55, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of him. I think this moment was a loving father, knowing a painful experience was coming, and pausing and saying, Stephen, I'm here. I haven't left you. You're not alone. I'm aware of your suffering. I know it's going to be painful, but I am waiting to receive you in glory. Think about how that message must have brought him comfort and peace in that painful moment. And I would say to any one of you, I would say to those of you in Liberty Jail, shaking your fist at heaven and saying, oh God, where art thou? I would point this moment out to you and say, look beyond the veil. There he is with that same message. I'm here. I haven't abandoned you. I'm aware of your suffering, and I am waiting to receive you in glory. This is one of my favorite moments in the New Testament. It's just God saying, I know you're suffering, Bryce. I know you're in pain. And it needs to happen for divine reasons that you'll understand someday. I am aware of your pain, and I'm waiting to receive you. I think there's a corollary moment in the Book of Mormon do you remember in the city of Ammoniah where the women and the children were being burned and Amulet cries out to Alma, let's stop this. We have the power, we can stop this. And Alma says, the spirit constraineth me. And then he says, for the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory. In other words, he was watching. He was aware of their pain and their anguish. He knew they were suffering. And he was allowing it for divine purposes, but waiting to receive them in glory. Now, for those of you who have ever given birth to a baby and you've gone through that pain, and then the baby is laid in your arms, what does holding that baby for the first time do to the pain that you went through in getting there? It kind of washes that pain away. And I think the same thing needs to be understood, is that those who go through pain, especially those who go through a painful death, are received into arms of glory. And that goes back and changes the pain into glory itself. So this is a beautiful moment where the father just simply peeks through the veil and says, Stephen, I'm here. You're not alone. I'm aware of your suffering, and I am waiting
1: to receive you in arms of glory. I think that's a really powerful message. Yeah. This experience is also introducing a new character. In the 58th verse, as Stephen's being killed, we read that the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. This is going to be the individual that will be known as Paul. But right here, he's Saul, and we read in the next chapter that he is busy persecuting the Christians. This is what Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, read. Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. And Saul made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women and committing them to prison. So Saul is a very devout Jew, and he's out seeking the saints and persecuting them. And this is, like I said, the introduction to who he is. He's going to be a mover throughout the rest of the New Testament. Now we're going to come back to him. And
0: in the middle of that, Mike, we we now look at another of the 70. We talked about Stephen, who was one of the 70, and now we're going to focus a little bit on another, and his name is Philip and Philip is going to go down and preach the gospel. And two things happen that I think are significant while Philip is preaching. The first thing is his interaction with someone named Simon, who was a sorcerer and bewitched the people. I want to point out verse 9. This is a a beautiful illustration of what we talked about in our last podcast, about the difference between the qualities of the non-disciple. And the qualities of the disciple i think it's worth pausing and noticing verse 9 that simon gave out that himself was some great one and we see that all over social media often demands that people give themselves out as some great one i am some great one now let me contrast that with the attitude of a disciple the attitude of the disciple is God is the great one. God is the one that did this marvelous thing. If you mix that up and you begin to think that you're the great one and God is not, the Book of Mormon is going to tell you exactly where that is going to lead you. That pride cycle is going to cycle, and it's going to lead to pain but if you will always retain in remembrance that it is God that is great, we can shortcut through the pride cycle and avoid the painful portions
1: of that. So in this chapter, we read in the 14th verse that the apostles that are in Jerusalem, they're hearing that Samaria is receiving the word of God. Now remember, Samaria is the land north of Jerusalem. This is the area where for a while in Jesus' ministry, he would, on one hand, say, we're not to preach to these individuals, and then sometimes, you know, specifically like in, in John, in the early bits of John, he goes and visits with the woman at the well, and the city's converted. But now, we've extended our witnessing. We've had the witness of Stephen in Jerusalem, probably right there at Lion's Gate. Now we're extending the circle. The circle's getting bigger. We're going into Samaria. And so when the apostles hear that, they show up. And in this chapter, as they're giving individuals the gift of the Holy Ghost, that's verse 15, Simon sees this, and he's an outsider, and he wants to have this power. And so he offers the apostles money that he could receive this power. And this is where we get the word simony, which is a word that denotes individuals that are seeking high office or station, and they want to pay money for it authority with money. In the Catholic tradition, there was a period of time where individuals could pay money to receive offices of higher stature. That has been known to have happened in some of the Christian tradition, and that's where we get that word. But in this context, Peter's response in verse 20 is pretty sharp. He says that thy money will perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. And so that's kind of that uh, rebuke that he gives him. And in the midst of all this, there is a reference to sorcery and unclean spirits. And there were many that were possessed with them, and they were able to be healed by those that held priesthood authority. If you're interested in some of that discussion— We put some things in the show notes for those of you that are interested and want to pull on that thread and and go into some of the commentary about, okay, what what are unclean spirits, what are evil spirits, and so forth. When I teach a gospel lesson, uh, specifically when I'm teaching this part, the way I approach it is this. We'll read the chapter heading. I'll ask the students, are you interested in reading some of this material? And it depends on the level of the students, but oftentimes they say, yeah, let's read it. And so we'll go through the text and we'll read these 40 verses. And then we'll say, you know, we'll kind of put it into four bits. You know, let's each read 10 verses and then we'll kind of go through it. And as we go, I'll often say, is there anything you want to talk about? And every class is different. They all have different personalities and different needs. And so what I find as a teacher is just to let the text, text be read, and then discuss it as needed, and kind of meet the needs of the students and follow the promptings of the Spirit as you go through it. But what I see here, big picture, is we have this issue with Simon, an outsider, seeking office or station, but he doesn't know how to do it, like he's, he's offering money, not understanding the full extent of how the gospel works. We have the witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem. They hear that there's people that want to hear the Word, so they go to where that need is. And we have Philip, boots on the ground, doing the work. And then we have this beautiful exchange between Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch as Philip leaves Samaria and he goes to Gaza and he meets this individual that's reading Isaiah. And there's a beautiful one-liner in here, isn't there, Bryce?
0: There is. The Spirit whispers to Philip in verse 29, "'Go near and join thyself to this chariot.' So following the prompting of the Holy Ghost, Philip goes to him, and he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah. And Philip says, understandest thou what thou readest? And the man responds and says, how can I? Except
1: some man should guide me. Can I just say that, Bryce, with Isaiah? (laughs) I I need help. Isaiah is not easy stuff sometimes. All
0: of us, at some point, with regard to some material, need a teacher. How can I understand this without someone to guide me? Now, all of you out there who hold that sacred title, it is a marvelous honor to be a teacher, especially of the gospel. Those of you who struggle and maybe get down on yourselves and you wish you were better or you get nervous, what a marvelous thing to hear in your heart. How can I save some man should guide me? God bless the teachers out there who work so diligently to understand something so that they can guide others. I love the next line. He desired Philip that he would come and sit with him. It's a beautiful picture of a classroom. It's not a one-way discussion. It's a sit with you. Can I help guide you through this material, and can I sit with you? Oh, how God must love the teachers of his word who sit with people who don't understand and walk them through it and help them understand difficult
1: passages. And so he reads the text, and he says, who is this? The text in Isaiah he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation and judgment, who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, who is this? Who is this man? And Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And essentially, Philip's response is, Isaiah is talking about Jesus. The suffering servant passages, all four of them in Isaiah, to Philip will be read as Jesus. And so then he says, here is water. What doth it hinder me to be baptized? And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart then you may be baptized. And so he was, and he went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And so Philip leaves. Now, we're going to read in the end of the 8th chapter that he's going to come to Caesarea. That's going to be a location that's going to have a very important position in church history. In this location there's going to be a great city that has been built, and there's going to be a prison there where Paul will spend some time before he's transferred to Rome. And so we'll talk more about Caesarea as we go through the book of Acts. But what a marvelous question to ponder this
0: week. Verse 36, what doth hinder me? I think we should all take a moment this week and ask, what's hindering me from keeping or making a covenant? because I'm going to get it out of my life. See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? I love that line. Yeah.
1: So now we go into Acts chapter 9, and this is where we read the Savior appearing to Saul. We read that he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples, and we read that Saul desired from the high priest letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way whether they were men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem now notice that phrase any in this way or any of this way that is the hodos the christians were considered those of the way and so to rome they were in the way to saul they are in the way and to christians they would say yes we are in the way meaning following Jesus was a way of life. It was a way of living and it was a way of being. And so in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and there was a light that shone round about him from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest.
0: And there was no mistaking the name. He knew exactly what that name was and who it was and what it meant. And all of a sudden, all those years of fighting against Jesus are now slapping him in the face where this glorious being says, I am that being that you're fighting against. Now, here is the moment of a disciple. And all of us are going to face this. The moment of my actions are now being held in front of me, and I realize that I have been wrong, whether it's a child who corrects a parent gently and says, Dad, that's not what you should do, or a spouse who says to someone, that's not what you should do. This is the moment of the disciple. This is that key moment where you now stand face to face with a past mistake. What are you going to do? I remind you that in teaching of unrighteous dominion in Liberty Jail, the Lord said to Joseph, when they undertake to cover their sins, that's the temptation here. In this moment, are you going to brush it aside? Are you going to justify it? Are you going to excuse it? Are you going to cover your sin? Paul is now face to face with past errors. And in one of the most beautiful moments in Scripture, paul handles this like a disciple and says trembling and astonished lord
1: what wilt thou have me to do that's a great line like that that is to me that is the most important line in the chapter Because I think we can do so much with that line, can't we? Yep. There is a tradition
0: passed down in Brigham Young's family. To my knowledge, no one can find it in print. But man, it it survives the oral tradition. If you know a relative of Brigham Young, you've probably heard this story. There's a tradition that one time Joseph Smith, in the middle of a public meeting, asked Brigham Young to stand and rebuked him publicly for something that Brigham had not done just kind of ripped him up and down and tore him to shreds in front of everyone, not privately. When he was done, all eyes turned to Brigham. Now, what's Brigham going to say? No, Joseph, I didn't do that. Joseph, you're wrong. Did he get defensive? Do the walls of defense go up? Does he try and correct Joseph? Brigham Young's response was simply, Joseph, what would you have me to do? And apparently, according to the tradition, Joseph Smith ran down from the podium, threw his arms around Brigham, and said, Brother Brigham, you passed. And that's the story that's passed down among the young family. That's how you respond. What would you have me to do? And for all of you who face that moment of accountability for past mistakes, the moment where you have your I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest moment. And you know you've made mistakes. May we have the courage of the disciple to simply just say, Lord, what will thou have me to do? I think, just think that's one of the most beautiful lines in the scripture. And I will forever praise Paul for being that kind of disciple.
1: I want to share this commentary from President Benson talking about this question. Lord, what will you have me do? He said this, God's will for us can be determined from three sources. Number one, the scriptures, particularly the Book of Mormon, of which the prophet Joseph said, a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Second, inspired words from the Lord's anointed, counsel from prophets, seers, and revelators. Local church leaders, likewise, are entitled to give inspired counsel. Number three, the people of the world have the light of Christ To help guide them, but members of the church are entitled to the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the Holy Ghost to be fully operative in our lives, we must keep our channels clear of sin. The clearer the channel, the easier it is for us to hear God's message. I like that in connection with President Nelson's advice to hear him. We have to find ways that we can get light. You know, for me right now, I find that if I'm really angry or frustrated, it's really hard for me. To hear the voice of God, and I see that in the exchange between Nephi and Laman and Lemuel, where they're so angry all the time and they're so frustrated. And I think that's one of the tools that the adversary uses is discouragement or anger. Sometimes for me, I'm not really a mechanical person, and lately, a lot of things in my life have been breaking, and I've had to fix them. Like my main water line broke, and I had to dig a hole down to get to the main and to fix it, and it wasn't like my best moment. I mean okay, I'm not mechanical, but I know how to dig. So that's the one thing I could do. But my point is sometimes... Digging in mud is never pleasant. It's just not a fun experience. But Bryce, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had this, but there are times in your life, at least for me, where I'm just frustrated or things aren't working, and it's easy for me to sit and go just to be a complainer. And I think that that is one of the one of the, tools of the adversary. There's many of them, but I really appreciate President Benson's insight as to, okay, how can I get in touch with that light? I really like that. Now, I also want to note that it does say in verse 7 that the people that are with Saul, it says that they are speechless. They hear a voice, but they see no man. Now, that's kind of what it reads in verse 7. The JST is going to say, that they see a light, but they don't hear the voice. Not to be too big of a nerd, but we can get into, well, I am a nerd. There's another way to read this verse if you get into the Greek construction of what's going on here. And I'm going to skip the details there in the show notes. But right here, Luke may be making an old classical distinction that the individuals that are with Saul hear the sound, but they don't comprehend the meaning. Now think about that. Are there times in your life where you hear the voice of the Lord, you hear the words, maybe through the Lord's anointed, or maybe you read the scriptures, but you don't comprehend the meaning? For me, that's a large part of my life. That's a big reason why I've tried to understand the text more. For me, um, I've had experiences where I felt the Holy Ghost— Very strongly that the scriptures are true. But then in the next verse or two verses later, especially if I'm reading something more complicated, I'll read something and go, I don't even know what this is saying. So I'm reading the words. I can sound them out in English, but I don't comprehend them. And Luke may be saying that with this, at least as it renders in the Greek. But however you want to read it, the one thing I see here is that once Saul sees the light, he's all in. And I think that that for us can be an example in our life. We live in a very complicated world and we may not understand everything. We may have questions, but if we can get in touch with that light and if we can see it and if we can be true to it, even when it's hard or even when it doesn't make sense, I think Saul in that instance is a good example because he's going to join these individuals. He's going to be in the way now in the rest of the book of Acts. And because he is, it's going to be hard at times, but he's all in. You know, Mike, there's a similar moment
0: in Kirtland, Ohio. Philo Dibble was in the room when Joseph Smith received the vision on the degrees of glory. And Philo says, I saw the glory and felt the power, but did not see the vision. I've thought a lot about that. I felt something. I saw something but I didn't catch the vision. And sometimes I think we're all like that. I feel something, I saw something, but I didn't catch the vision. Paul is going to catch the vision, and he's going to be all in, and it's going to cost him dearly. But he caught the vision, not just felt something. He caught the vision. And I think that's the example for all of us is get the light catch the vision, and then jump in with both feet. Now, the next little story is another example of the disciples' challenge. Paul, like Alma the Younger, or Lamoni, or Lamoni's wife, this experience is so traumatic, so life-changing, so shifting from one position to another that it strikes him down. He is three days without sight, and he doesn't eat. Now Paul needs help. So here comes the test. There's a man named Ananias— another disciple, and the Lord comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, he says, I'm here. Arise and go into the streets, which is called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. He prayeth. And Ananias says, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints in Jerusalem. And you want me to go give him a blessing? You want me to go heal him? He's going to kill me, Lord. And the Lord says, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And then this beautiful little moment, Ananias went his way and entered into the house. He dropped all the bad feelings that he had towards Paul, who had been doing some bad things towards the Christians. And now that the Lord says he needs help, I'm going to go help him. I think this is a critical moment for disciples. Do you remember when the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were so nervous about joining the Nephites? They're going to hate us. We've done some horrible things to them. They will never accept us. And what do they do? What do the disciples, what do the Nephites do? They welcome them. They call them their brethren. They give them a place. They defend them. They give them a really good place. Jershon was one of the best places. And they defend them, they cover them with their army. And I think that's one of the tests of a disciple is, will you accept the Saul's that become Paul's back into your life wholeheartedly? Or will you hold a grudge? I think Ananias passes the test simply when he went and did, in spite of all the things that he'd heard about Paul. The other thing I like about this exchange is that is what the Lord said that Paul would do. He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And Paul is going to suffer a great deal. In fact, Paul will later say in his letter to the Corinthians, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness, and yet, Listen to what Paul will will also say. In spite of all of those challenges and all of those heartbreaks, Paul will say also in his letter to the Corinthians, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. That statement to Ananias is very descriptive of what Paul will be asked to deal with. And yet Paul knew it was worth it. Eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the marvelous goodness that God has prepared for them that love him. This man is going to be a beloved character to Christians all over the world. But it started that moment, who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And he just does not about face. He's all in. He jumps in with both feet. Everything that he has, he will now spend the rest of his life dedicated to preaching Jesus. I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified is what he will say. I love this man, Paul, and I hope someday to shake his hand. I hold him in great esteem, and I'm looking forward to the next several months where we get to focus on his life his writings his suffering and his testimony of the per- the man he persecuted for a while and then repented and wholeheartedly embraced and spent the rest of his life proclaiming
1: now saul's going to spend some time in damascus preaching the gospel The enemies of Christ are going to find ways and plot to take him out, to get him killed. And so he's going to get out of Damascus, we read in verse 25 of Acts 9, down by the wall in a basket. And so he does, he gets away, and he comes to Jerusalem. But when he gets there, the Christians are afraid because they've heard about how legendary he is in persecuting the saints, And so this is where we're introduced to Barnabas. Barnabas takes him in verse 27, and he's going to bring him to the disciples and talk about how he had seen the Lord in the way. We kind of see this idea throughout the book of Acts. And so Barnabas takes him in verse 27, and he talks about how Paul had defended Jesus to these individuals. Now there's a shift After Barnabas defends Paul in front of the saints in Jerusalem, the shift occurs right about verse 32. So Paul's initial missionary experiences and being converted to Jesus is really the front part of Acts chapter 9. But then there's a shift at verse 32, and we talk about Peter. And Peter is going to be moved by the Lord. North from Jerusalem, all the way to this place called Joppa. Today it's called Jaffa. And so Peter is led to Simon the Tanner's place in Joppa. That's verse 43 of the ninth chapter. The ending of Acts chapter 9 from verses 32 through 43 shows Peter being moved by the Spirit of the Lord up to Joppa, which is about an hour south of Caesarea. And Caesarea is an important place. It was a deep water port that was constructed by Herod, and it was built essentially to help increase trade, but there was also a Roman post there. And at that post was a man by the name of Cornelius, a centurion. And he was a devout man, meaning that he was an individual that believed in God, and in chapter 10, which we'll talk about next week, this is when Cornelius is told by an angel to come south to Joppa. So we're moving Peter up north in preparation for Cornelius's witness to move south. And this will help increase our concentric circles. If you remember, in the very beginning of Acts, the Lord said, I want you to preach in Jerusalem and in Judea. And in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That last part of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the uttermost parts of the earth is taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And Cornelius is going to be that individual in the next part that we cover next week. And come follow me. So while Peter is here, he meets this woman named Tabitha. And her name is also, by interpretation, we read in verse 36 of Acts chapter 9, called Dorcas, a woman full of good works and alms deeds. And what happens is she dies. And so they wash her body in preparation for her burial. And when Peter sees her, he kneels down and he prays and he turns to the body and he said Tabitha arise and she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter she sat up that's acts chapter 9 verse 40 and he gave her his hand and lifted her up and when he had called the saints and widows presented her alive and it was known throughout all of Joppa and many believed in the Lord and the very last verse tells us that he stayed with this individual named Simon a tanner in this coastal city known as Joppa And so in the next chapter, Cornelius is going to have an experience with an angel, and the angel will tell him to go find Simon the Tanner. And when you get there, the Lord will tell you what you need to do.
0: That's going to change everything. Now all of a sudden the whole focus will shift to preaching the gospel to the world. We'll get into that next week these disciples are real people with real challenges and they face real concerns just like you and I do. But one thing I hope you're seeing is that the Lord is with them with all their imperfections and all their challenges. The Lord is with them. He notices when we suffer, just like that moment with Stephen. He is aware of all the pain we go through and he is just waiting with open arms to receive us. May we be more like these devoted disciples of Christ who will spend so much of their life preaching his name and standing fast in his gospel. May we be
1: that kind of disciple is our prayer for all of us. Thanks for sharing your time with us. We will see you next week when we cover Acts chapters 10 through 15. Make it a great week.